What's happening? <laughs> First of all, welcome to an episode of Cat the Baker. I'm Chef KB. And today I'm interviewing another interview. It's been a while since I've done this, but this is an old friend of mine, Miss Fiorella DiCarlo. Hello. Hello. We're doing this whole thing online on the laptop. Let me do a little introduction. Yes. Okay. So the last time we talked was what, 2005? Oh God, is it? It's like almost 20 years ago. I just want to say that. (gasps) (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Crazy. And then you messaged me on Facebook. Yes. I was like, oh my God, it's Fiorella. I haven't talked to her in so long. And I was so happy to hear from you. We talked briefly the other day. Mm Mm-hmm. You have so much to say. I'm so interested in what you have to say. The reason I want to interview you is because of what you're doing now. Mm. So why don't you go ahead and say what you're doing job-wise? Yeah, of course. And I was so happy uh, to connect with you again, Cashin. You're like a sunshine to me. Yeah, so I am a registered dietitian. I specialize in the treatment of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So I have some specialties, postgraduate uh, specialties that allow me to do that. I love that area of work because I get to work very intimately with um, mostly women, some men, but mostly women on that topic of food relationships. So that's amazing. What I do on the side for some comic relief is I have my um, living in Italian cooking nutrition little series going on of cooking videos. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's just kind of inspired uh, Italian lifestyle and how that can be kind of a healthy uh, lifestyle to follow food wise, lifestyle wise. So that kind of gives me a little bit of a balance. For sure. Because I'm sure this is a heavy subject, right? Like a heavy topic to deal with every day with your patients. It is, uh, because the thing with eating disorders is that it is mainly a psychological issue. Mm -hmm. And the eating is a symptom of those, is only a symptom of of the psychological issue, whether it be depression, anxiety, anything that the person is going through, their food relationship is a symptom of that. So in order to treat it, you know, you have to understand the the psychological undertones to it. So it could be really intense. You know, there's a there's a spectrum of how severe, you know, someone can be, right? Um, anywhere from disordered eating patterns to things that can be really, really, um, you know, life-threatening. Sure, for sure. But very gratifying at the same time. Like you, you, you feel like you're helping, hopefully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like you're making a change. Yeah. Well, the reason I thought... I wanted to interview you was because, Mm. you know, I'm a chef, I deal with food, and that is comforting to me, you know, eating and (laughs) yes, and and just preparing food, you know, and I've talked about in other episodes how, I mean, food is emotional. It brings you right back to your childhood, right back to other experiences. Mm -hmm. And that's why I thought what you're doing now is so interesting. We met at Houston's, which is now known as Hillstone, yes, at a restaurant in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I worked there for five years. But what an experience it was. Yes. Yeah. This was like an American restaurant. We were greeters, which we checked coats, we took names and descriptions. And then I left in 2005 and you stayed. Tell me about your process because you started going to school and working at the restaurant. Yes, yes. I literally put myself through school with that restaurant, um, (laughs) interestingly, because 
when I first started there, I was kind of in the, I was going to fashion school. I was going to Fashion Institute of Technology to be a fashion journalist. And at that point, I took a, a career turn because even though, you know, I love fashion and all that, but um, the industry wasn't really satisfying, gratifying or mm-hmm. challenging, I thought, anymore to me anyway. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do something else. And I was trying to figure that out. So when I first started at the restaurant, I was still trying to figure it out. As that went on, I was like, oh, you know, I'm dealing nutrition feels like a thing I can get. But it took a big effort to go back to school and start from scratch all over again. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty because now you're, you're going from, you know, where you're going from a creative place to all of a sudden having to take these pre-med courses to, to get into the program. Right. Organic chemistry. Are you kidding? In high school, yes. I would do anything to get out of those classes, right? Or have to cheat on someone's homework, cheat on tests. Oh, I did it all. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever I needed to do. I had to take organic chemistry one, two, anatomy and physiology, biochem. Right. All the pre-med stuff to get in. Yeah. It's crazy. That's impressive. Though. Well, I can't believe I did that. So you were you did that during the day and then at night you worked at the restaurant. Exactly correct. And or on the weekends I worked in the restaurant and, and did that during the day. And then finally, when I got my degree, when I got the RD degree mm-hmm. and I was ready to practice as a registered dietitian, I decided that I wanted to start my own practice right away rather than starting to get into a hospital and going from there. So I continued at Hillstone with my RD license mm-hmm. while setting mm-hmm. up my uh, practice in the evening. I think that's amazing. Like, yeah, I'm like super proud of you. Oh, my gosh. No, seriously. Like we haven't spoken in so long. It's been almost 20 years. I just love all these goals you've reached and things you've done. Like that, I think that's awesome. Thank you. Like I love women who can empower other women. Mm. And I feel like you're doing that with your job. I really truly hope so. No, I, I'm sure you are because I've met a lot of people with like food issues, right? When I'm sad, I stop eating. <laughs> completely. Mm. And then, mm. <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes it's the opposite. What is it that you've come across most? Like where you said it's psychological Mm -hmm. where, you know, the women, men, like where where this comes from. Yes. Like how, Mm -hmm. how do you treat them? Like, what is it something that you start off with? Well, first, the first thing is, is that the person has to kind of understand what it is their eating issue, whatever it is, whether it's binging, purging, restricting, or a combination of all of those. They have to realize what it is actually being used for. What is it functioning as? On the surface, and I call it the Hollywood explanation of eating disorders, which is, oh, the girls are just obsessed with being skinny. Okay. Mm. That's like a really artificial perspective of that, right? Sure. Yes, it might look and sound and act like that, but deep down inside, it's more about control and self-regulation of emotions, right? So you said for yourself and myself as well, right? Mm-hmm. You're feeling anxious, you know, we tend to restrict. We, we unable, you know, we unable to like take in food, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when we're feeling a little emotional down, we attempt to self-soothe with treats, right? right. Now, on, in a regular way, a, nor- a normalized eater has many different moments like that. Mm-hmm. What makes that kind of normal because we're humans and we're emotional beings And the difference between that and an eating disorder 
mm-hmm. is someone who is completely, completely tied to that behavior on a day-to-day basis to get through the day, mm-hmm. to literally get through every day, right? So let's say, I can give you an example if you need. Yeah, go ahead. So like, for example, if, if someone is a restrictor, Right. And there and restriction means a bunch of different things. It means under eating calories, but it also can mean food rituals like, oh, I have to eat uh, six ounces of protein with only a half a cup of carbs at 315. No later, no more you know, food rituals. Okay. Now you, you notice the, the extremes of what I'm saying have to do more about control mm-hmm. than the object itself, food. But what do you mean? Like why? Why the control? Is it because their life is so crazy? They need an aspect to control or? Correct. And what it feels like is this. Here's how it kind of starts. Say you're 12, 13, like bumping around in life, trying to figure yourself out, right? Puberty is Mm -hmm. hitting, hormones Mm -hmm. are flaring, you're anxious as hell. Mm -hmm. You don't have Dr. Phil as a dad to kind of tell you how to down-regulate your emotion or Mm self-soothe. So -hmm. what we do is we figure out a way to do that for ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? How do I lower my anxiety on a day-to-day basis? Mm -hmm. We generally pick objects, objects being, in this case, food, body, and weight. Mm -hmm. Now, on the surface, it sounds like, oh, you know what? I feel like I need to just eat a little bit more healthier or lose a few pounds. Sure. Now, that desire compounded with the person's anxiety levels fuse. Mm, Okay. Right? And so now they're using that diet, let's say, Mm -hmm. to calm their anxiety. But they're becoming so strict and extreme about it that if they veer off that diet, it causes them tons more anxiety. Okay. So they're like locked in. Exactly. So then there's no foreseeable way out. It just like gets worse or? Correct. Because what also interestingly happens biologically to us, right? Um, When it comes Mm -hmm. to, there's a lot of uh, interesting studies and work around what under eating and starvation does to our brain. Mm. As a matter of fact, there's this, if you ever get a chance, you'll love this, Ketrin. There's this uh, uh, study called the Minnesota Starvation Diet. Okay. Okay. It was done in the 40s. Oh my God. In the 40s. Yeah, it's really cool. We're kicking it back a notch. We're taking it back. <laughs> there was this American doctor. His name was Ansel Keys, right? And he um, was helping uh, the government mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, figure out how to refeed prisoners who were coming, POWs who were coming out of camps. Because when once someone is starved, you can't just give them like, a loin of pork. Mm. You, yeah, you have to kind of like ease in because you can kill them. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to feed them slowly. Wait, what do you mean? You can kill somebody if you give them too much food at once? At once, when, once they've been starved, because there, there, are certain, there are certain things that happen to your body when, when it wants to starve, right? Uh, systems begin to shut down. Okay. All kinds of lungs, heart, so, so forth, digestive tract begins to... Um, basically shut down. Wow. So when you are suddenly infusing them back with that, mm-hmm. right, you can have like a cardiac arrest among other things. Wow. Okay. So you have to refeed them slowly. Mm. So in order to find this out, exactly what it would take to do it and to do it safely, mm-hmm. what he did is he got a bunch of men uh, between the ages of like 20 to 30 who had no previous medical history issue or psychological issue, and he cut their calories by 30% okay. over the span of six months. 
and then was going to start the refeeding process to see how safe it was going to be with them. Wow. Sounds like a lot of fun. I don't know if this would be able to be going on today, this type of this type of experimenting. That's crazy. Yeah, that's like <laughs> that's unhealthy experimenting, but okay. Unhealthy experimenting. I guess during <laughs> wartime, a bunch of things were done when that should never have been done. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> right. But what they ended up finding out as they were studying these guys mm-hmm. is that during this six months when their calories were restricted, they started to behave in these really interesting ways. Okay. They started to becoming obsessed with food. Their anxiety levels went up. They began to hoard food. They began to show all these different signs of anxious tendencies towards wanting to overfeed themselves, right? Uh, uh, Desires to binge as well. But they didn't overfeed themselves. They couldn't. Okay. They didn't. They couldn't in that moment, but they were desires uh, of it. Now, also following them after the study, they kind of did continue a little bit on that route, Mm -hmm. right? So what, what we learned from these studies are that our brain's chemistry and our psychology changes with our relationship with food under different levels of restriction, whether they're self-imposed, like we go through famine moments, Mm. or self-imposed like diets. Okay. Right. right? We begin to be more obsessive about food after periods of restriction. Mm-hmm. So isn't it interesting, right? We, we go on a restrictive diet, any diet, pick any diet, pick any card, right? And mm-hmm. your brain changes after that diet's over and where you end up becoming more obsessed with food, more anxious around food. Mm-hmm. Your food relationship changes as soon as you start your first diet. Interesting. Yeah. First of all, I'm really bad with diets. I feel like every, especially women, you know, and I, I can't speak for men, but for me, a lot of it has come from like my mother, you know, maybe saying, oh, you know, your thighs are a bit bigger than, you know, like like small comments here and there. And I saw that in myself. And then after that, I'm like, oh, this is not normal because then I start comparing myself to other girls, right, when I was in school. And I see that too, like at the hotel, for instance, there are a lot of celebrities and you know people that are guests at the hotel Mm -hmm. and then they have kids and then i see the kids starting with the habits of the mother or the parents you know and how they eat right and like right do you find that a lot with your patients that it stems from like the parents or what do you think yes right that's actually a really really good question yes and i think that it's it's definitely when you have a parent who is uh has disordered eating patterns and you happen to be an anxious sort those things begin to connect okay similarly though well not similarly but conversely what can happen in the same family is that there can be two siblings a family member mm-hmm. who is, say, of diet mentality or have some disordered eating patterns or hypervigilance over body. Mm-hmm. Um, one daughter could not really be anxious and therefore doesn't really connect okay. so bravely to her. Okay. But the other daughter who is anxious and everything with an anxious person is taken in, in extremes, right? Maybe taking some of the messaging that her mom is 
given more in more extremely by her. Do you feel that it comes more from mothers or women rather than fathers? Yeah. Rather than, well, that that's an interesting question. I've seen my gals or boys have been influenced evenly by any disordered patterns that either their mothers or fathers may be manifesting. Mm. However, from a cultural perspective, right, since I think that historically women have been preyed upon more in terms of body ideology, right? For example, our own, our whole, right, our whole marketing system is, I need to scare you into thinking you don't look good enough, your eyebrows aren't Mm -hmm. perfect enough, so you need to buy this product. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. So there's that systematic right marketing fear based stuff that will make women men are catching up, though. Men are catching up, but women more prone to kind of that messaging. Sure. I mean, you know, I I know based on growing up, you know, especially in my 20s, like when we were working together, you know, I was so more self-conscious, insecure Mm-hmm. I mean, all of that. I as well. Yeah. And that's huge with women. Right. But mm-hmm. but I've dated a lot. Right. In the last like 14 years. And <laughs> love it. Yes. Almost every man I've met or gone out with, they all have anxiety. Like, is this a normal thing? Does everybody have anxiety? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what it is? It's, it, everything is on a spectrum, right? That we're the spectrum. We're mortal beings. And therefore, we're aware of our mortality. So in of itself, yes. that gives us a uh, sense of anxiety, right? Oh, crap, I'm going to die, you know? Um, hence why culturally we built defenses, uh, religions, governments, so forth, to make us feel safe. Well, and especially during COVID and, and things like that, you know, but to the point that a lot of people are on medication for it. Yes, right. So there you go more. Now you're heading into the mid-spectrum to the very other end of the extreme spectrum, right? Um, that people have various states of anxiety and mm-hmm. everyone uh, can be dealing with it in a different way. They can be using adaptive coping mechanisms, which are good ones, right? Things that don't have a lot of ramifications to it. Like, oh, I'm using yoga to calm down my anxiety. Fantabulous. Uh, a maladaptive one would be like a gambling <laughs> issue, right? Maladaptive coping mechanisms that have ramifications, right? Okay, sure. You said you started this like page, right? On Instagram is to balance your life. So it's uh, living in Italian. So in case you didn't know, Catherine, I was born in Italy. Of course, you know. I know that. And you speak Italian. I do. And the Neapolitan dialect, which is always rather naughty. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> is it? I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I worked in Italy for like six weeks. In Rome? Well, outside of Rome. Um, it's called Casperia. But I worked in a restaurant. Oh, nice. Yeah, after culinary school. Mm. But what is different about the Neapolitan dialect? Okay, well... Not only is a question, was the difference in the dialect, but was the difference in the people, right? So it's really... Okay, tell me. We're, we're, we're a bunch of characters. We're a bunch of characters. We're about an hour and a half to two hours south of Rome, but it's a totally, it feels like a totally different place, right? So the Neapolitan dialect is almost like a, how can I describe, it's like a, a, a slang okay. way of speaking 
the proper Italian. Similarly, though, every region in Italy has its own slang, has its own dialect, sure, right? Sure. So, yeah. so I can you can recognize. But the Neapolitan, there's something that is very uh, gregarious and wildly gesticulations that go along with it. There's a slight argumentative edge to it. <laughs> You know what comes across is like Commedia dell'arte or something? Well, yeah, well, yes. I mean, that's extreme, but. That's extreme, but you know what is part of, I'm so happy that you know that. That's actually part of the Neapolitan folklore, like that uh, Pulcinella character. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar. Yes. And similarly, if you've ever visited uh, Naples, and I think that a lot of people should, back in the day, like 20 years ago or so, uh, had a bad rep. But now it's totally beautiful, totally cleaned up, totally safe, right? But it's a much overlooked Mm -hmm. place. Like people will go to Florence, people will go to Rome, you know, maybe they'll go head up north. Mm -hmm. And even if people go to the Amalfi Coast, they'll skip Mm -hmm. Naples. But that city is so, when you walk in, right? No traffic laws, chaotic, but but beautiful, Mm -hmm. gritty, Mm -hmm. yet poetic, right? Right under the Vesuvius, like they're dealing with life, death at every moment, right? Because of the looming volcano. (laughs) You make it sound so intense. (laughs) You can tell I love it. You know what? I've been to Italy three times and I haven't been to Naples yet. I, yeah, I still haven't gone. Okay, it's I haven't. I'm not ignoring it. I want to go. I love Italy. I got the list. I got the <laughs> list. <laughs> you know, it's supposed to have the best pizza. That's that's like, for that's sure. Why I need to go? That's for sure. The Neapolitan what's pizza. Di- Wait, what? What's different about Neapolitan pizza versus the Roman pizza? Ah, so the Roman pizza is definitely. Uh, Different crust completely, okay. right? Different crust. And really, that's when you go all through Italy, mm-hmm. the main difference in all the different pizzas, whether it's Sicilian, Roman, uh, you know, Ligurian or Neapolitan is the crust. Okay. That's okay. a crust. And what's different about ours is that it is a paper thin crust. Okay. Right. It is a very thin, very, very thin crust. Um, now, if you want to be really a purist mm-hmm. about it, Neapolitan pizza should be more like a margarita, mm-hmm. which is, you know, San Marzano tomatoes, mozzarella mm-hmm. di bufalo, and kind of keep it like that basil okay. done, right? Just fresh sure. ingredients, mm-hmm. so forth. Now, of course, there are places that will serve toppings and this and that, mm-hmm. right? Um, of course, but that, but that is kind of the trifecta ingredients for the Neapolitan pizza. Whereas in Rome, I, they're, mm-hmm. they're a little bit more fluid with toppings and the crust is completely different too. Okay. And up north, up north, like up in Genoa, the pizza is more like flatbread. Okay. So you mean like less rounded or like? A less rounded and literally, literally like focaccia. Oh, like thick. Yes. Like kind of thick. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so then compared to New York pizza, the Neapolitan, I mean, New York pizza is huge and kind of thin but the crust is not super thin right and so what's the difference right and i think that and and this i think opens up a question of kind of like what is italian food versus italian american food Mm -hmm. okay right like what happened there right because (laughs) most of the things i what happened (laughs) well it's like because when you go to Staten island in new jersey you know like all the italian americans (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, I do. <laughs> right, right. I know that sounds that sounds a little no, but you know, I I'm a little picky about it. 
Well, because it's all covered with cheese, like too much cheese. Girl, it's too much everything, girl. It's too much everything. And and <laughs> and, and and they're also making up things as they go along. <laughs> like, what do you mean? What are they making up? Like, there are literally certain combinations that don't exist in Italy, right? There are certain sauces that don't exist in Italy. Well, like what? You, you're 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 pure Italian. Like what? Yes, yes. Like everything, like you said, let's start with the things, everything being naturally lighter, yes. right? When when you are creating a, let's say, a chicken cutlet that is then covered in tomato sauce, uh, mozzarella, and then stuffed in a sub, <laughs> that doesn't, you, you, don't, there's, you don't, you don't. <laughs> yeah, you don't see that in Italy. You just, you, you don't see that yeah. in Italy, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. and it's interesting, but what the, what there, and I think that a lot of different cultures do, Mexican, Chinese, India, and so forth, in the United States, is try to make it amenable to the American palate or what they seem to feel the American palate wants, right? Mm-hmm. And so that sometimes ends up translating into tons of stuff. Basically, so much sauce and cheese, like you can put it on a shoe. I mean, right? <laughs> Wouldn't that just taste good on it? Does it matter? Does it matter what was under it? <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that it almost doesn't matter what the core of that thing was. Like, does it matter that there was chicken there? <laughs> no one's tasting the chicken anymore anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. You're so right. Well, uh, what I noticed when I was in Italy. Yes. Was that the food was fresh. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their own olive tree. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, the market, the market gives you what is ripe. Yes. The tomatoes taste like tomatoes. Um, the mozzarella is handmade and, you know, you get everything from your local market, depending where you are. Yep. Um, the olive oil is made, you know, from the local olive tree farm. I mean, everything's everything has flavor, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's the big difference. Yep. Like, that's why I also like to grow my own things versus buying certain things just because it has more flavor. Yes, yes. The one of the little, you know, my little five principles of living in Italian when it comes to food, right, is the idea of, you know, going to market at least once or twice a week or growing your own, right? Yeah. Because seasonal, seasonal f- fruits and vegetables are mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. peak of their nutrient density, number one, right? Number two, uh, the fruits and vegetables pick up nutrients out of the soil <laughs> that they are grown in. So for particularly in and around the region of Naples, which is a lot of and in parts of Sicily too, anywhere where there's like volcanic soil, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Like the San Marzano tomatoes are, you know, grown. They, they will have different mineral mm-hmm. contents, nutritional contents than, than a food that's in a different type of sure. soil. Right. So going to market for sure, choosing seasonal foods versus, is not or is providing more freshness, nutrient density. So those are some of the principles of living in Italian that I speak about. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and if you think about it, like even like I just went to Peru and the food there. Love it. Like the fruits were amazing, like super ripe. And of course, they picked. Ooh, they picked what did them. you like? My favorite fruit is cherimoya, but I don't think it's grown in Peru. It's grown in Ecuador, but they bring it there. Oh. It's like neighboring, you know, but. That- what is it? What is cherimoya? You've never had it? Yeah. No. Oh, my God. It's, it has flavors of almost pineapple mixed with banana. But I've, I've seen it. You can, find, you can find it in New York. Ooh. But they're super expensive. 
and they're not ripe. You have to let them ripen. They have a green outer skin. You peel off the skin and it has little black seeds in it, but it's delicious. It's my favorite fruit. Mm -hmm. But I also had passion fruit there. Like the bananas were ripe. I mean, everything mm. was was bought ripe, you know, and, and that's the thing I, I see in the U.S. You know, unless you go to a farmer's market, everything here is like not ripe, right? You have to buy it and then let it ripen. Mm -hmm. um, but that brings that brings a point to the nutrients, right? Like right. if you pick it when it's green, it's going to have less nutrients, mm -hmm. right? I right. mean, versus leaving it in the soil longer. Right, right. Okay. I love how we go from psychological to pizza. <laughs> Anyway, but <laughs> yes, for sure. Obviously. <laughs> Makes total sense. Yeah. You know, I have my own pizza oven. I have my own pizza oven and I make my own pizzas. I listen. I'm not surprised. I remember you making your own ice cream. That's what I remember. I was like, girl, <laughs> remember you had that ice cream maker. Oh, that's right. I saved coat check money to buy it. It was like four hundred dollars. That's so romantic. Oh, I love it. Just picking you churning the damn thing. <laughs> no, seriously, with that machine, it made me so happy. And I oh. made the most delicious I made the most delicious cinnamon ice cream and I served it with my own apple pie. Girl. It was amazing. You're, you're <laughs> Satan. You're Satan. Really, that's what you are. But you know, uh, I had to get rid of that ice cream maker. First of all, it was 25 pounds. Oh, God. It was like super okay. heavy, number one. Like the machine started taking too long to chill. And it was one of those contraptions from Williams-Sonoma that you didn't have to put in the freezer or anything. It had its own cooler in it. So you turn the knob and it would, it would be a pint of ice cream in like 40 minutes. Okay. But then it started being like an hour. And I'm like, what's happening? So... For anyone who wants to make their own ice cream, listening, Cuisinart ice cream maker, but you have to put the the thing in the freezer, but it works great. Within 20 minutes, you have ice cream oh. and it's a lot cheaper than $400. So mm. if you want to make your own ice cream, Fiorella. <laughs> That's holy yes. smokes. That's yeah. I, um, the baking, well, I don't know how, how, well, no, I'm sure that's measured as well, right? From a, a food science what? perspective, much like baking, right? It's it's a food yes. science. It's not just Italian yes. grandmas. Yeah, just throw it in, <laughs> taste it, have a fight in between, you know? <laughs> That's so funny because when I worked in Italy, it was like there was an Italian grandma. And, and yeah. The daughter, who was like fifty, yeah. right? Like the grandma yeah. was like already eighty. I don't know, but yeah, but the daughter couldn't talk yeah. back to her mom. You know, like yeah, as they're making oh, yeah. what is it? They were making like intestine, um, tomato sauce or something with intestines. Is that? <laughs> oh, really? That's uh, uh, is it? Was it tripe? Yes, tripa. Yes. Tripe, tripa. Yeah, alla romana. That's why we're in the same. Re I Intestines, although they will, they're not below making intestines, mind you. Wait, it's not tripe is an intestine. I don't know what. Uh, oh, tripe! I was, this is. I love that you said that. Well, listen, I, I'm, I'm in I, pastry. I'm in pastry. I'm just. Like, I know you are a food scientist. I am a peasant eater. Okay, because <laughs> because the idea is is everyone from like most immigrants that are that come here to the United States, right, are coming here from the poor what used to be the poor areas economically, you know, um, mm -hmm. 
areas of, of, the, uh, of Italy. So that would be mm-hmm. mostly under Rome, like Rome and below, including Sicily, Naples, Bari, all these places where we're all immigrants from there. And what okay. we brought, what, what is part of our cuisine is we call peasant cooking, right? So we get basically mm-hmm. the odds and ends of uh, the animal, the parts that, you know, people, you know, didn't want, and that including offal, right? Intestines, stomach, whatever, sure. yes. and tripus, tripus stomach, okay. right? Um, and so far, like pig's oh, that's feet. What I mean. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Sounds attractive, right? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I see the chefs, they use all that stuff in the kitchen. But also, I was a vegetarian when we met like I was a vegetarian. Yes. Uh, and I I did not care about all the meat stuff. So, but I, st- I started eating meat again. Oh, what's... I don't know if you remember that. But... Uh, tell me about that. <laughs> well... Tell me about your meat eating. Yeah. It was, it was actually talking about like psychological. I didn't want to start eating meat because psychologically, like just the thought of it made me feel sick. Like I wanted to vomit. Uh. I had not eaten meat in like 25 years, but my bones were having issues. Like they were becoming older than I was in age. And I yes, got it. And, and that boils down to, if you believe it or not, you know, your genes and your blood type, like certain blood type that you might have, not everybody can be vegan, you know, or vegetarian, depending on your blood type and your and your genetics. Yes. Um, so the reason I became a vegetarian was because I I just, you know, the way animals are treated, um, yes. the waste, like, I didn't want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. I started eating meat again. And I started with chicken broth. And it did make me feel... You know, at first I didn't notice a difference, but I would take it, you know, I would eat it like once a week. And Mm -hmm. then after about six weeks, I didn't think I had low energy, but after about six weeks, all of a sudden I felt very different and I had, I don't know, more energy than I did before. Like I totally noticed a difference. Yes. You know, and I'm not saying, yes, everyone has to eat meat. No, but in my case, you know, um, the effects on my bones were then um, reversed. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. And, and, and the thing is, yes, and, and also the energy thing as well is coming from the infusion yeah. of the bioavailability of the iron, right? And, and sure. for me, if, if a client comes to me and they say that they're vegetarian or vegan and it's coming from a place mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, philosophical or religious reasons, whatever, I'm going to support whatever they need me sure. to support them sure. with, right? If someone mm-hmm. asked me a question and said, as a dietitian, do you think that those diets are more healthy than a, a meat-eating diet? I would say no, mm-hmm. right? What mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. say is that a really great, I sometimes describe myself as a plant-based carnivore, Okay. Right. So it's right. I know it sounds kind of, but, but a lot of veggies. No, you mean a lot of veggies with a little bit of meat or. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or kind of both simultaneously at the same time. Right. So you're, you're still getting all of the plant-based benefits that a vegetarian or vegan will say that they're, you know, trying Mm -hmm. to get Right. So I'm still getting it, still getting it, still getting all of that, the fibers, the antioxidants Mm -hmm. and so forth. But what I'm doing is I'm adding some animal meats in there, whether it's fish or beef or whatever, because I know that those things are a, the most bioavailable forms of 
protein it for is. our bodies to absorb. They also contain certain nutrients like zinc mm-hmm. and minerals and iron, right? That that are most bioavailable through mm-hmm. the animal form to us, right? Contrary to popular belief. At the hotel, you know, it's a luxury luxury hotel. A lot of uh, guests they are vegan, dairy free, gluten free. Mm. They don't have celiacs, but you know they just mm-hmm. it's they're trendy. They're trendy right now. But <laughs> you know, and and then they want me to perform miracles uh, of 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 making pastries that are everything free. Right, right, right. Air free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. <laughs> but you know, uh, sometimes I buy certain ingredients, and. They're actually worse for you than than like natural ingredients. You know, like if you want something to be vegan, like margarine is a molecule away from plastic. Oh God, um, is that better than butter? No, I mean for God's sake. <laughs> Do you think that what you eat, like I think you said this before, if you're gluten free, dairy free, I mean you're restricting, right? Is that right or? Mm. Yes, I mean there 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 are certain issues. Like if you have celiacs, okay, fine. If you're lactose intolerant for real legit, okay, fine. And even and even lactose intolerant people can have a lot of different dairies like kefirs and yogurts because of the the, the probiotic aspect in it. So it's fine. Sure. The, the, well, the fermentation, because I've done an episode on fermentation and it's amazing. Love me some fermentations, girl. <laughs> well, also, if you yeah. if you have dairy that has not been pasteurized, um, it is actually okay to drink for lactose intolerant people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, it, because it has not been pasteurized. Like that chemically changes, you know, the product and it makes it harder to digest. It makes it last longer and safer because you don't have, you know, the, the harmful bacteria mm-hmm. that could be in there. Right. But um, it kills a lot of other things that are good for you mm-hmm. in the process of pasteurization, you know? Right, right. And and I think that's, like you said, so much of these different things, this is, is the idea of wanting to pick one thing that is causing what they to believe is an issue with their eating, right? Um, mm. Removing gluten, for example, most of the time when people say I've lost weight by removing gluten, well, that's because mm. most carbs contain gluten and they've just probably started minimizing their carbs, which is would have happened regardless. Exactly. Well, first of all, gluten is a natural occurring yeah. uh, thing. Like it's not, you know, when you naturally mix Girl. flour with water, yes. gluten is created. It's not like something I add. I don't add gluten. Mm-hmm. Like it is created when you mix the two. You know what I mean? Like people don't understand. They're like, oh, you can't make this without gluten. I'm like, what, do you, what are you saying right now? Like, I don't- yeah, <laughs> they don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're saying. Well, because it's also to be fair, like to be fair, like, you know, they are get it's like I am anxious to change my body. Mm. I it is much harder for me to go into a deep dive into my psychological reasons of why I'm overeating, let's say. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So can you just give me something right quick Mm. to kind of like put an end to this? And and it's easier for people. Oftentimes, even for when they come to me for help, it's like, well, let's look at this, let's look at this, let's look at this lifestyle, mm-hmm. sleep, all this stuff. And they're like, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. let's not get nuts. Can you just tell me, what do you think about acai? Will that have me lose 20 pounds? Okay. 
So Asai, there's, there's a human desire. It is good for you, though. Asai. It is. It is. It is. It is. It is. It is. But but that that idea of a magic bullet kind sure, of a thing sure. to where yeah. there's this one thing that's going to eliminate. And I get yeah. it, right? Yeah. Because if you if you are thinking, and this is something with my gals too, mm-hmm. like the fantasy that we're fed, right? Mm-hmm. The, if we think about it, right? If we are inhabiting an ideal body as accepted by culture, whatever that sure, is, sure. right? Here is what we are promised. Mm-hmm. We are promised love, success, attention, confidence, a better job, a better boyfriend, a better no. whatever, Maserati, whatever it is. <laughs> when in fact- Really? Yeah, I want those things. No, I'm kidding. You're like, but, but that's, but isn't no. it the lure, sure, right? Sure. Those things are so intricately connected mm-hmm. symbolically mm-hmm. that the urge for one thing like I have to lose weight now yeah. is really a desire for those other things. Right? Yes. I mean, another aspect is obviously, you know, if, if you're overweight or there's health issues, you know, that's something different, right? Mm. Like, cause you're mm-hmm, talking about mm-hmm. like um, what we see on commercials and things like that. Right. Cause there's other reasons why, right, right. you know, you might be, um, stuck on losing 20 pounds, right? Or 50 or hundred, right? Like depending on health issues. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And there's, you know, there, there comes that whole topic of, you know, health at every size, right. And body acceptance and so Mm -hmm. forth. And, and there is an interesting line, right? So of course, uh, if, if the ideal is being, uh, let's say the cultural ideal via actresses or models or whatever is, uh, having to be underweight, Mm-hmm. Well, that's unhealthy as well, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what if right. we are, to your point, what if we are walking into a different type of weight, right? Mm-hmm. That might be coming from not normal eating patterns, mm-hmm. right? But overeating patterns. And those same overeating patterns are causing metabolic issues like high cholesterol, mm. diabetes, and all those other things. Right. Then right. where does body acceptance fall along that line? Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. I think women with each other are bad too. You know, I feel like if not, we have to support each other, like not bring each other down. Right. Like, oh, yeah. Like I see that so many times, especially with girls. I mean, I felt that too growing up. Oh my gosh. You know, like I think girls to each other are so terrible. I mean, do you find that with your with your patients? Like Well, you know what it is, is that I think that we are culturally curated to make that a bonding topic of conversations, right? Think about it. In the workplace, women mm-hmm. together, friends together, colleagues and so forth. What is one of the biggest yeah. topics of of conversation and ways of of, of uh you know, like a self-deprecating manner helps people bond, right? So what are, what are you mm-hmm. often here to, oh, I'm on this diet. Oh, I wish I had your thighs. Oh, I wish I had your knuckles. You know, it's, and it's, mm-hmm. and it's constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah. You no, you never know. You never, I mean, I'm sure. You never know. Right. But, but the point mm-hmm. is, is that it's such a, you don't hear guys doing, well, you hear guys sitting around going, oh, John. I mean, the, you got thighs to die for. I mean, they're not really. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. You no. can crack a walnut with your butt cheeks. No, <laughs> is that? <laughs> it's not. That's so true. Right? It's not like so. So it's being used as like bonding rituals for women, but it's also self-deprecating and. 
we're fueling mm-hmm. by contributing to the conversation, which, you know, we're just doing to, to, to be social. We're also, uh, you know, solidifying, yes, that's a problem. We need to do something about mm-hmm. it. Right. Mm-hmm. So there is this, mm-hmm. there's this one exercise when I was working um, at the Renfrew Center um, that we would have these different exercises mm-hmm. that the girls would or, or adult women would play with. And one of the assignments for the week mm-hmm. was is try whenever you're having a conversation with any of your friends, family members, coworkers, mm-hmm. have any conversation that is not related to food, body and weight mm-hmm. and see how far you go. See how far you go. I mean, I if that topic was, I up. wouldn't make it very far because that's all I talk about is food. So, <laughs> right, right. Well, 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 well. Not in the. Not, um, hopefully, yours, of course, is in the beauty of the the food and the mm-hmm. thing. But you know, in a complaining like diet. I way. see. Okay, okay, sure. Right, like you should like diet. You shouldn't eat that. Mm-hmm. I'm on this diet. Mm-hmm. I'm on that diet. That's what I meant by food okay. conversation. Right, diet conversation. I should have well, said. Well, you know, um, so. I have awesome assistants that I work with and they mm. and they make these delicious um they're raspberry danish. It's a croissant dough. It's mm. filled with Ooh. this um pastry cream, like this vanilla pudding. It also has oh like a raspberry compote on the inside and then it has these fresh raspberries on top. And it's my favorite thing. I eat one pretty much every day. They save me one if I'm not there. And <laughs> but then Love I'm it. like, mm, should I be eating this every day? I mean, maybe not, maybe mm-hmm, not, mm-hmm. but it gives mm-hmm, me joy. Mm-hmm. Like, cause I found that when I'm stressed out, like this month has, has been yes. super stressful. I need sugar. Like I, I'm addicted. I'm addicted yeah. to sugar. I'm just going to say that. Like, I know I am. Um, okay. I mean, I inhale <laughs> it when I bake, like it's there, like in the mixer, mm-hmm. it's like, <laughs> I'm inhaling it. Yes. Um, like I, I just made a gingerbread right. house. It, you know, it's all sugar. Like I <laughs> saw that was spectacular. Oh my god, I'm so happy it was wow. done. But, but uh, what I'm saying is, so I'm addicted to it. And mm-hmm. I've noticed mm-hmm. though, when I'm stressed out, I eat more of it. You know, like yes, with your patients, they come to you, right? How do you solve their uh, issues? Like, what do you start with? Like, the reason they come to you, right? There, they fa- they've realized what they're dealing with is not normal. It's an extreme. How do you how do you reduce their yes, yeah, uh, you know, ext- extremities? I don't know. Do I say that? Yep. Yeah. No. 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 That's right. That's right. Well, it, you know, uh, it's um, here's a good way of looking at it. Both restricting. Mm-hmm. And overeating are both emotional eating patterns. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. One restricting is used to regulate an emotion. And so is overeating used to regulate an emotion. And oftentimes the gals in their evolution of their eating relationship can oscillate between the two different ones. Mm-hmm. Very rarely does a restrictor stay a restrictive forever. It go, they go from restricting to binging to this and that, which of course, mm-hmm. right? Because when you have a caloric deficit, you're more prone to mm-hmm. binge. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing that I have to do is first separate two things that are going on. One is the use of the food emotionally. And with that, you begin to start swapping out coping mechanism and showing how to self-regulate emotions without food. Mm, okay. The other part is making, is playing with their actual food. Because remember now, they're going through years and years of 
misinformation, diet mentality. So their food beliefs and what they think that they should be eating can be really far away from the truth. So that's when they and I will sit together and tackle the food part, the nutrition part, what should they should be eating, Mm -hmm. portion sizes. See, the thing with people with eating disorders is completely contrary to the way I was taught as a dietitian, right? We're as a dietitian, we're taught medical nutrition therapy, which is how to teach people to eat less Mm -hmm. because you're trying to avoid high cholesterol and, you know, weight gain and diabetes. Mm -hmm. As an RD specializing in the treatment of eating disorders, you're like, how do I get them to eat this cake? Okay. Hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Because there are food fears and phobias that are created around eating disorders that I then have to help them put back into their diet and not be afraid of it. Okay. Okay. So isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. It's like a tricky. Yeah. Well, that's what I found, too, in making pastries when I put them out for events. You know, Mm -hmm. the women are like, oh, I shouldn't. Oh, yeah. Right. Like like yesterday I was in an event and I made crepe. Uh, I'm like, do you want whipped cream? And they're like, oh, I shouldn't, but okay. You know, it's like, right. <laughs> right. Food issues are built within us, right? Like, especially dessert. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that, like you said, there's, there's, you know, there's people who have eating issues that are connected with their anxiety. And then there's like transgenerational mm-hmm. messaging from family members and their relationship with food goes into our relationship with food for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. There, there are certain physiological aspects of sugar that lead us to want to eat more sugar. That's for sure. Right. Yes. Biochemical serotonin rewards. Now, mm-hmm. there, there are things to do to kind of abate that as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But but, you know, there is a huge difference, though, between you having uh, your favorite croissant during the day. Mm. Right? I mean, I have it every Within, day, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but it's within a caloric context, right? Mm. It's not like you're necessarily sitting and using it to, to get through the day all day long. Through, you know what I mean? It's more, <laughs> yes. well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, yeah. It, is, it is comforting. It is comforting for sure. Right. And then when I'm dealing right. with other chefs and just the, yes. the industry itself stresses me out you know especially having oh moves, my god like one event after the other after the other you know oh, everyone's wow. like oh pastry it's so fun you must love your job i'm like okay it's not that i don't but it's very stressful you know and, and people don't think about what goes into everything and i'm sure you know every job has its stressful moments um but it's you know pastry is always having to make people feel better right like we give the free mm. dessert if somebody messed up or if somebody's complaining right you know it's right like, right so everyone comes to pastry True. all day to uh you know make them feel better if they eat it or not you know but but that's like right we're the go-to right. so it's very stressful right. to deal with all these different departments right coming to you oh my gosh absolutely on top of the events and, you know, whatever. But (laughs) the difference between someone who is having a little bit of a, like I said, normalized eaters without eating issues, have some moments of emotional interactions with their foods, emphasis on the word moments of, right? Mm -hmm. With eating Mm -hmm. people who have straight up eating disorders, it is more of a dependency on that, that Mm -hmm. if that 
thing was not present during that day to them, they would feel completely dysregulated as opposed to, oh, that stinks. I didn't get that today. Oh, well, right? Mm-hmm. That would be a more mm-hmm. casual response to the removal of, let's say, the treat that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But if it ruins your day, like you're unable to function, your anxiety goes up, yeah. up the wazoo in the absence of it. That's a different story. I see. I see. That's what I'm dealing with. Okay. So for people to even come out and talk to you and admit they have a problem, like that's a big deal. Right. Younger kids nowadays, like 11, 12, 13, because, you know, there's a little bit of a wanting to be kind of cool by feeling a little abnormal. There's a whole thing like that going on as well. So they feel a little bit more comfortable talking about my anxiety, my this, my depression, all this sort of thing. But you speak to someone who is in their 50s or in their 60s and there's still like a stigma about because of the way they grew up at their time. Do you find that going to therapy now or someone saying they're going to therapy is seen as a negative thing or now it's just more open and people are more okay with it when they're talking to you and also talking to their family or friends that they're going to therapy? It's both. I think that there is definitely a magnifying glass on people now where in the past there was not, nor, you know, was it called certain things or was it able to be called certain things during certain centuries, certain during decades across certain cultures, right? It's not like something people would normally talk about, right? Even nowadays, as a matter of fact, if I, if I treat an uber religious girl, right, um, their parents don't want anyone to know that their daughter might have an eating disorder because it's a mental issue and that might get in the way of her marriage prospects. Mm. Yes. In very hyper-conservative religious circles, Mm. let's say. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's quite, so imagine that, right? Imagine Mm. that because for me, when you look at that, I mean, that's not okay. That might be an extreme reaction in a specific group, but we're part of the same like universe. And there's like parts of that, that I think emanate in anybody's psychology, right? Like the fear of presenting that forward, you know, but now I think it's become a little bit more normative. Sure. So how long do you find that you typically treat somebody for this until you find that they've recovered or they're healthy? Like, do they recover? They can recover depending on how long they've had it, right? I think that if you meet someone who's 14 years old and it's been kind of doing this for about a year or so, I think prognosis is positive. I think we can get her out of that, you know, in, in a reasonable way because it hasn't embedded in her as 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 much. Someone mm. who is in, a, in their 40s or 50 coming to me for the first time and it's been going on since she was 18, Right. And she's kind of tried to figure it out on her own. That's Mm. going to be a longer road. Also, the severity of it, if you have a very, very sick anorexic, because when you when you are anorexic and your brain and body is malnourished, now it's starting to behave in a totally different way cognitively. So it's very hard for that person even to take in the information, Mm. even to. Um, take in the therapeutic part of it, right? And that's why it's so important with anorexics that we have to re-nourish them first before we can get them to the therapeutic part. 
Oh, which age, which age do you find is the most insecure? Like, do you find like teens or 20s? Like, That's a really interesting question. I think, I think it's like around puberty, right? You, you remember what it was like for God's sakes, right? You're one day climbing trees. Yeah, totally. Climbing trees, yeah, not worried about anything. And then the next thing you know, you are this sexualized <laughs> being with hormones flooding through you. And now you're like, wait a minute, do I look good? Do I not look good? When it really doesn't occur to you as much when you're like, I'm 10 or 11. Like you don't care. But then it's suddenly, right? And you have to try to find a way to yeah. not only simultaneously individuate where you feel special somehow, but then also fit in. To whatever the norm is around you mm. right and that really informs the way you start to view yourself mm. right mm -hmm. i'll have women who'll say to me you know i was five eight uh and i was from you know indian descent tall girl in when i was in fifth grade but everybody in my school were these very small like five foot five foot one blonde gals right and i felt really huge compared to them now mm -hmm. she wasn't huge she was just tall but compared to them and because they were a little physically different she felt completely yeah unique. to this day she will still she went through an entire lifetime feeling big and huge when she never was literally Right. But it's the way like, there's a certain identity that we start to connect mm. at that very mm. young age that we can carry on for a very long time. Well, and there's different body types. I mean, I had the same issue. Like just recently, I was looking at older pictures, you know, and I was always judging myself, thinking I was larger than I really was. I mean, did my weight go back and forth? Sure. But I looked good. Like we we always judge ourselves and then we look back and I'm like, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, like it's crazy. It's crazy what we do to ourselves mentally. Um, you know what? This is going to sound really corny, but I was watching one of these A&E biographies years and years and years ago. And there's that actress, Delta Burke. Yeah, I remember. Who used to be on Designing Women back in the day. I like love mm. me some reruns. I'll tell you what. <laughs> there was a biography made on her. And she was like, my gosh, you know, she talked about having a lifelong battle with their body mm. from the minute she was a teenager she was on one diet or another that her mother would put her on and this and that and then she went from that to diet pills to an eating issue to some purging and this or whatever and she said that she was never ever ever happy she was told that she was in the wrong body and she just believed it all along the way then mm. one day she was looking back at all of her old episodes because you know obviously she had this very unique experience where much of her years were on camera mm -hmm. and she looked back and goes damn i was a goddess like what was my problem mm -hmm. and the right and the tragedy of not being able to connect with that there mm -hmm. right like what a waste it's super sad like i remember going to acting school and I was full on told, like, I am not a leading actress. I am a supporting actress, like, body, you know? And I either have to lose, I don't know, 40 pounds or something stupid, or just learn to be funny. And, I mean, I'm, first of all, I'm goddamn funny. 
Like, I don't need to. <laughs> no, but it's crazy what you're told. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I, you know, this person must be right because they have experience. And and sure, like maybe, you know, maybe certain body types don't get you in the door like right away. I don't know. But I know plenty of perfect body people that didn't make it either. You know, it doesn't matter. Yes. Well, isn't that the idea, right? So what I talk about to my women and my girls is that when they're trying to chase a body ideal, right, whether it's a body shape or a weight, and they're, and they're so obsessively trying to achieve that aesthetic, I often ask them, what is the fantasy attached to that aesthetic, to that weight? What do you think you're going to feel, have, do when you reach that weight? And they'll go into this, that, yes, I'll feel more confident. I'll, I'll be in love. I'll be able to get a better job. My relationships will work. You know, all this fantasy around the number. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, what they're really saying is it's not the number that they want. It's the fantasy that they want. And they want it with such a sense of mm-hmm. urgency right? That's where the obsessiveness comes in. That's that they want the feeling of it. Yeah. Not that it weight. the weight's superfluous in a lot of ways, like such specific weights mm. and body shape, you know, for a fact, and I often say to them, I said, you know, it's a false sense of security. It's a false sense of security to chase around an aesthetic idea, thinking it's going to solve and organize you and prevent you from getting hurt and prevent you, you know, you know, having a certain type of lifestyle when you know there are people, right, that can have the body type or not have the body type and have the life you want. After I got divorced, I lost like 50 pounds. Like I got healthy. I ate fish for breakfast, you know, and like <laughs> stuff that you don't want to do. At a, at a girl. <laughs> for breakfast. Listen, Ajita, Ajita is a big weight loss. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I lost all this weight and I was never this thin before, you know, and, and I look good, you know, but did I feel any different? No, you know, and I ended up wearing sweatpants like nobody even cared, you know, but when, but when I did go out, yes, mm-hmm. I went out with this person and like months prior and I went he worked in a bank and I went back into the bank and I saw him and he didn't recognize me and he asked me out and I'm like it's me oh no okay that's amazing but you know what I realized is when I reached this like fantasy weight I didn't get the attention I wanted I got the opposite it was just men wanting to hook up with me. It was not, it was even worse than before. Right, 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 right. Because what happens, I think also, and by the way, I wish I can cuss because I would have cussed so bad right now when you told that story. I feel like you can. I don't, I don't care. You can really? Can you? <laughs> I mean, I'll just well, put explicit. Oh, okay, great. Because I'd be like, this motherfucker, you coming up to me right now? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Sorry. No, it was, you know, he was. <laughs> but, but that's what it is. Is like sometimes when you have a certain aesthetic, right, whether it's the body thing or you're just like a pretty woman, right, in mm-hmm. general, mm-hmm. I think that what you do is you begin to attract the type of guy who likes shiny things, who likes this, mm-hmm. the status symbols in that. And they end up being lesser quality guys, interestingly enough. 
right? Yeah. You know, I'd never been in that scenario before because I was always, you know, I was never like the skinny girl. So all of a sudden, you know, I was wearing like size six jeans. It almost made me sad to feel this way, to get this kind of attention. Like I felt good in myself. Right. But I was disappointed on how like the attention I got. Right, right. Because it's like, again, I think it attracts a very specific type of mindset. And then if that becomes everyone you're approached by, you're like, wow, guys suck. (laughs) 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 They're like super, super, right? You know what I mean? Because it's a certain type. But but if if you get to have more of a mixed bag, you can be like, all right, that's that type and this is this type. Right. Mm. So, yeah, it does. It does have the, you know, people talk about that a lot, actually, that it does affect the way, you know, who you attract. It's not it's it's not always what it's cracked up to be. Well, but do you feel like sometimes people like maybe they attain their weight and then they gain back the weight because it's like a security blanket? Like, do you have you found that? Well, Yes. As a matter of fact, I've actually found that in a lot of trauma cases and one in three eating disorders have some sort of uh, trauma background, Uh, hence the eating disorder coming about. And in that case, for example, let's just say something in terms of sexual assault, for example, Mm. you know, sometimes the gals will manipulate their body shape and size in order to protect themselves from Mm another experience like that now mind you that's not conscious they're not thinking oh well you know i'm going to starve myself down to a prepubescent body Hmm. so i don't i don't appear sexual or they don't say you know what i'm going to binge to create armor around me to protect me Hmm. it's not conscious but when you dig around with the gals a little bit it becomes a lot like that interesting so do you find isn't it? Do you find that sexual assault pairs with, you know, the field that you're in? Like, is that a typical thing? Is there a lot of sexual assault? I think that it, it happens like this. It's like any trauma, including sexual assault, right, has the propensity to make us extremely anxious and fearful and feel out of control because of that. And so when someone is trying to feel more in control and more protected, then they go to coping mechanisms like food and eating to cause their anxiety to go down, to make them feel more in control, you see? And all this is acting on a subconscious level. I, it doesn't happen like, oh, I just experienced such a horrendous trauma. My anxiety is up the wazoo. I have an idea. Let me control food so I can control my anxiety. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. They, they're like two different spheres. It occurs to the person in two different ways. This is this and this mm-hmm. is this. But then this becomes this. They, they, they become merged. One of them is then being used to manage the other. So when someone's in treatment, how long do you treat them typically? Well, firstly, it, it, there's a, a couple of different treatment levels. Uh, I would treat somebody on an outpatient level. So if they, if they are seeing me, they're seeing a psychiatrist and a therapist at the same time. We're always teaming together to have. Now, if they're really, 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 um, you know, 
severe in any case, uh, we are recommending them to a higher level of care, which is either a residential or a longer standing program. So they can just stay there for a while, for several months, 24 hours, or at least nine to five a day. And they get this intensive programming. Mm-hmm. If they're on an outpatient level with me, I will see my gals maybe once or twice a week. And it can go, I, I've seen my longest right now for about five years. Mm. Now she's over the, she's over the scary hump. She, she's, she's very, very healthy now. She's very healthy. Every once in a while, when her anxiety pops up again, mm. she might fiddle around with some eating disorder behaviors. Mm. But as soon as we catch them right quick, she can gather herself back in again. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the beauty of treatment is that not so much that you're like eradicated from or from the rest of your life, but you realize what the function is now. You used to think it was about weight. Now we know it's about control. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I'm going through something like there's a death in my family, my anxiety goes up. And the first thing my subconscious mind goes to, oh, my God, I'm going to restrict again to try to gain control. And you're like, oh, oh, I see that now. I see that now. Let me mm-hmm. pull this wreck in. Mm-hmm. And that's progress. Right. Yeah. That's recovery. Mm. Okay. So let's talk about the other side of you. Uh, First of all, first of all, you were quoted in Forbes magazine. Yes. Yes. You're such a big shot. You're a big shot. Oh, oh, (laughs) hell no. You did research. No, seriously. You're a big shot. You did your own like food um, cooking show. And and you do your Italian, you know, cooking, YouTubing. Let's talk about that. Okay. Okay. So, all right. Well, actually, because of the, you know, kind of like complexity and sometimes, you know, harrowing parts of my work, which I love, I love, I love, I love. I wanted mm-hmm. to create something that showed food in a more fun and benign light right Mm. where it was celebrated and if i'm delivering nutrition information in my living in italian videos it's Mm -hmm. more of eat more of this versus don't eat that mentality Uh, right mm -hmm. because i'm very aware of what if one of my gals were watching this video would it exacerbate their bad thinking about food or would they feel more benign about it so i I think about them as i make my videos Mm. Mm-hmm. And then one of the components that I talk about living in Italian is watch out for processed things. One of the things that I think that the U.S. culture has a lot of to its detriment, and I think a lot of European countries, including Italy, does not have, is a snack culture. American food companies have created the snack culture and the snack food, mm. and it just happens to be a starch, something that does not promote satiety. They're created mm. in such a hyper-palatable way where you can't stop eating mm. them, whether you're hungry or not. Mm-hmm. And so, right? Think about it. Like crackers, chips, granola bars. This is made up. These are made yes. up foods that have been marketed <laughs> to the U.S. person as snack foods. That's true. And they're like the worst. That's true. Like, I'm not feeling well. I went to the grocery store yesterday and I got Cheetos puffs. Like, I don't I don't eat this normally but because I'm not feeling well. I'm like, I want Cheetos puffs and I start eating them. So cute. <laughs> no, but as I start eating them, yeah, like the first five, I'm like, oh, you know, this is like hitting the spot. Right. But then after that, I don't even taste anymore. Well, that's it, because they're so they're so like 
hyper palate, lots of salt, lots of and then you, you really just can't taste it anymore. It's the same with sugar. But what happens with my emotional eaters, we're going to just segue to my emotional eaters for a second. These hyper palatable foods engage with the binge eating disorder a lot, right? In the sense that, you know, because in binge eating disorder, the person doesn't care if they're tasting it anymore or not. They are just eating it basically out of control and basically to, you know, numb emotions. So it's never really about fullness and taste anyway. And so those are the foods that they tend to binge on. Like no one will binge on a rotisserie chicken. It's always these hyper palatable foods, right? Yeah. Well, so what what do you suggest to eat? Like fresh things? Snacks? Yeah, like stay stay with whole foods, right? I would rather you eat, uh, you know, some cheese and fruit right or you know you can have like hummus and and something you but something even even if it's like oh it's a piece of your lunch that you had left over or something from the night before but it's like real food so mainly you see women in your practice but also you see men and mostly women because a lot of men right now haven't been you know come out of the woodwork yet talking about their eating issues if they were to have any right uh but because it's 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 historically known as a female issue Although a lot of a lot of this kind of stuff goes under the wire because it's so normative in our culture to promote dieting. So a lot of the people with eating disorders just look to the naked eye just as a dieter to people. Right. Um, Men, too. You can see like maybe bodybuilders or gym rats or all those sorts of people that could be masking an eating disorder, depending on how obsessively they're doing it. Right. But it's so normative in culture that someone watching that says, oh, well, they're just being healthy. But speaking earlier about moms, you also have dads that can transfer their emotions onto the boys, let's say. You have a lot of dads who are like this, too, that they're transferring their own food and body anxieties off of their children. Um, And whatever if you, the mom or dad had, like you can have parents who have disordered eating patterns or have a little bit of eating disorder themselves. And most certainly that's going to impact, you know, the family food environment and, and, and the siblings or the, the daughters and maybe even the sons in the family. But you can also have parents who maybe don't have eating disorders, but they are really into diet culture. They're always on a diet. You'll have, oh, my mom has always been on a diet, but my dad is always like an emotional eater and a binge eater, right? Emotional attachment to food. And so they might right, learn, they're learning coping mechanisms. Like you learn how to love, you learn how to eat, you learn how to cope with emotions, you learn how to express emotions through your primary caregivers, Right. So we were definitely mimicking that. Okay. I just want to say that I've seen you on a local news. Is that right? Like you do local news things? Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's amazing. I was uh, doing their resident dietitian um, stuff for a little bit, like every six weeks, uh, you know, a new health topic, whether it was, um, you know, foods that help you sleep or, you know, foods that boost your metabolism, things like that. That was fun. I want to thank you for doing this interview with me. Yeah, it's always so. I mean, like, it's not even. It, it, it's the best time with you. You are <laughs> and you are amazing. No, you know what? I really enjoy talking to you. It's easy and it's interesting what you have. 
to talk about and what you've done. And you're helping these girls, these other women, uh, men, even. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm just so happy that, you know, we reconnected and that we got this opportunity to, to talk. Me too. I agree. I've loved every minute of it. Thank you so much, Miss Fiorella DiCarlo. Thank you, Miss Catherine Beeman. <laughs> this whole thing with Fiorella interviewing her took a while. We probably worked on this for the last couple of months. So I'm so happy that you're finally able to listen to it. If you like what you've heard from Fiorella, please check out her page on Instagram. It's called Fiorella Eats TV. So she hosts her thing called Living in Italian. So please check that out. And thank you so much for listening. So until next time, I'm Chef KB. Please join me for another episode of Cat the Baker. <laughs>